0: Where it starts to become a surprise for people is the level of corruption that migrants in particular have to face, and and even more in particular, more specifically, black migrants. Um, These are individuals who are going to be very obvious as people who are not originally from countries like Panama or countries like Mexico as they're making their way through, um, and increasingly find themselves at risk of being bribed, robbed, um, kidnapped, or being detained repeatedly, uh, in a way that other migrants perhaps weren't facing to the same degree. Because you've always taken such charge. You are listening to
1: the border chronicle. <laughs> Welcome to The Border Chronicle, I'm Melissa Del Bosque, co-founder along with Todd Miller of the weekly newsletter on the US-Mexico border from a border perspective. You can follow more of our work at theborderchronicle.com. Today, I'm speaking with Caitlin Yates, who is a PhD student in sociocultural anthropology at the University of British Columbia. She's also a fellow in the Central America and Mexico Policy Initiative at the Strauss Center for International Security and Law. I wanted to have Kate Manon today because she spent several months in the Darien Gap interviewing migrants on their way north. Recently, officials in Panama announced that they've received an unprecedented number of people embarking on this treacherous journey through the Darien. And it's extremely dangerous, and yet more people every year are choosing to take this crossing, uh, most of them heading for the U.S.-Mexico border or Canada. In her research, Caitlin focused on African, uh, Haitian, and Asian migrants, And I'm looking forward to delving into their experiences and your your findings uh, while you were there for several months, Caitlin. Thank you so much for speaking with the Border Chronicle
0: today. Thanks for having me, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, so first off, I wanted to ask you, for people who don't know much about the Darien Gap or even maybe where it is, can you talk about the Darien Gap, where it's located and uh, what your experiences were like while you were there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the Darien Gap, um, kind of as the name implies, is this border region uh, between Colombia and Panama where there are no roads. Um, More specifically, the Pan American Highway Inns, or it was never completed in this part of the Americas. It's about a 100-kilometer stretch of very, very dense forests, uh, specifically a tropical rainforest. Um, And for the purposes of migration, it also happens to be the only land-based crossing for individuals who are leaving South America and entering Central America. And so while this has been a migration pathway for decades, um, for some individuals, it really wasn't until recently that you started to see Uh, individuals in kind of much larger numbers, in this case in the hundreds of thousands per year, uh, crossing this border region uh, and continuing their journeys northward, often towards the United States and Canada. Um, And I have been traveling to the Darien Gap since 2018 on and off, Um, but I recently had the opportunity to spend six months on the Panamanian side of the Darien Gap uh, in migrant camps run by Panama's Ministry of Security um, where I kind of learned the ins and outs of how people cross this border region and also the challenges that they face uh, in this part of the journey, as well as kind of along the route that they take all the way up to the to the US-Mexico border.
1: Yeah, and if you could g- explain, I mean, what what is it like when you're there and, and what is the journey like for people who are crossing there?
0: Yeah, so, um, Certainly for people who are making this journey from South America and moving all the way up to, to the U.S.-Mexico border and beyond, the Darien Gap is frequently considered the most difficult part of the journey. So in, in cer- certain ways, the most dangerous part of the journey. Um, so for people who are leaving from Colombia, from the Colombian side of the border, what it looks like basically is, is you take a boat across uh, what's called the Gulf of Furawa, which is just a small gulf region in the Caribbean that takes you to uh, basically the starting point of this jungle region. From there, migrants head out, usually with guides, at least until they reach the Panamanian border. Um, And at that point, for the most part, individuals are on their own. The truck itself is incredibly difficult. Uh, It requires hiking, to say the least, um, up mountain ridges, down into valleys, um, and perhaps most difficult or dangerous is across rivers. Um, The journey can take anywhere from 4 to 10 days on average, Um, and during that time individuals are sleeping on the ground in the jungle, oftentimes in groups, but still there are no communities really within the jungle, at least until you get closer to um, where the highway starts up again in Panama. Uh, People run out of water and food very quickly because those are items that are very difficult or heavy to carry when you're embarking on that journey. Um, And unfortunately, it's very dangerous, both because of criminal groups that operate in the region, as well as local bandits, um, but also because of just the absolute sheer difficulty of of traveling through a tropical jungle in that way, especially uh, given the result of uh, rivers frequently flash flooding, or at least the currents being very strong and very difficult to cross through. Um, For those individuals who are successful in ultimately crossing the Darien Gap, they reach these camps, as I mentioned, uh, in southern Panama and Panama's Darien province, where they're received by both uh, migration officials and border patrol officials from the Panamanian government. Um, in some of the camps, there's four in total, so in two of the camps, there is also an international organization presence um, in the form of Doctors Without Borders, HIAS, uh, the Red Cross, who offer some albeit limited but some um, medical services as well as psychological services for those who who have reached the camps and some sort of orientation on kind of what they can expect uh, in the next steps of the journey the reality though is that when people arrive in these camps they're often in really really poor conditions um, people are incredibly dehydrated many people will either break bones or dislocate joints um, there isn't really strong access to healthcare in any part of this uh, of the Darien Province in in Panama, and so what it ends up looking like uh, is that people just continue the journey, albeit injured or ill, uh, so long as they're able to to kind of continue. There's this this intent on the most on the part of most individuals to to continue moving forward, um, and so it's a very kind of rapid transitory space uh, as people exit the jungle and continue heading northward.
1: Yeah, so it's very, very dense jungle. Has it uh been more and more, I guess, cleared by all of this uh, people who are passing through?
0: Yes and no. So so there are two kind of main established routes at this point currently uh, that people are taking depending on what uh what community they're leaving from on the Colombian side and to some extent yes you do have this this sense of a route um usually what it looks like is just the accumulation of mud sometimes up to several feet of mud that you're walking through and that's how you know that you're navigating the the route correctly people also leave behind materials tents uh, empty water jugs things like that which help guide people as they're walking through the jungle um but you know because this is such a, an untouched space in terms of a lack of infrastructure, including roads or, or things like buildings, things like that, um, the routes are also kind of very susceptible to change. And that comes a lot of times with the riverbeds. So when there are massive flash floods, you'll have people who are either trapped for days or they begin to form other kind of subsidiary pathways to the jungle. So there are some main points um, that you would kind of reach if you were to cross the Darien Gap uh, taking either of the two main routes Um, but people do continue to get lost and things like that as a result basically of of the immense rainfall that happens almost on a daily basis in the jungle.
1: Wow! and have you made parts of the trek yourself?
0: I've made parts of the trek I have not made the entire trek although some of my my lovely colleagues have done that. Um, What I did was walk with migrants basically at the halfway part, so right before they were going to be reaching the camps, walking with them uh, there, and then accompanying them in what are locally referred to as pirawas, but what we would consider probably canoes, um, up into the main the main camps, which is where people finally see the highway again.
1: Oh, okay, and, and what are some moments that particularly stand out for you from your time spent there in the Darien?
0: <sighs> yeah, so... The Darien is a tough place. I mean, every day as migrants are arriving, um, there, there's going to be some sort of emergency and it's hard to anticipate exactly what it's going to be like or the conditions that people are going to be arriving in. But I mean, to give a sense, you may have a, a boat arriving and multiple people have broken bones, including open fractures. Um, And those people need to be taken to a hospital. But the nearest hospital with an x-ray machine is five hours away. And so there's this kind of logistical organization happening um, by anyone who has authority, be it government officials or or international organizations working there to try and facilitate that. Um, Another thing that happened pretty much every day is that children in particular arrive severely dehydrated to the point where water really no longer helps them to rehydrate. Um, And so what there was a constant need for were kind of packets of, of, of electrolytes to put into water, but there was never enough. And so trying to get children to a point where they, they weren't so sick, so to a point where they could actually consume some sort of liquid or some sort of food, um, was a daily struggle. Another almost daily struggle was the report of missing or deceased persons in the jungle. Um, and that's particularly difficult for individuals who don't speak Spanish, but obviously anyone who's having to report the, the death the absence of their loved one was was incredibly difficult um oftentimes it was challenging for those individuals to describe exactly where the event happened because how do you describe where someone went missing within an immense jungle like that um and even if there were really clear details it was very unlikely that there was going to be a rescue operation or the attempt to recover those those remains um, and so there's kind of the daily check-in of more or less how many individuals may have gone missing or may be deceased, um, wh- which kind of created its own struggles or dynamics within the camp. Um, I mean, I guess the last thing that I would say is these are camps that have the capacity more or less for about 500 people apiece. Um, but in the six months that I was spending there regularly, two to 3,000 people were arriving per day. Um, so all of the services were constantly overwhelmed. There wasn't enough clean drinking water. There wasn't any sort of shelter for individuals. There weren't enough buses for people to continue moving northward. So it was always just kind of a, a logistical nightmare um, for the officials, but of course also for the, for the individuals trying to, to continue onward, um, which created other challenges uh, within the camp dynamics.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think you said at the beginning, but these camps are run by the Panamanian government, and who else is in charge of these camps?
0: Yeah, so so the, it's run from the Ministry of Sec- the National Ministry of Security, um, and two agencies that are within that is Panama's Migration Agency and Panama's Border Patrol Agency. So they're in charge of the actual operations of the camp, but over the last few years, um, international organizations have also come to play a role i uh, a rather small role. Um, so every day you have Doctors Without Borders on the ground, as well as the Red Cross, the Panamanian Red Cross. Um, you also have HIAS, who's offering psychological services. And um, at least regularly, you also have the presence of IOM, UNHCR, uh, the International Federation of the Red Cross, uh, and other international organizations more or less doing monitoring to understand some of the dynamics and how they were changing, basically monthly in the camps. Um, But what this looks like is that, you know, migrants are received by, uh, although Panama doesn't have a military, by a force that looks very similar to a military, Um, the Border Patrol, where army fatigues, they don't carry weapons in the camps, but they do when they're doing patrolling in the jungle, uh, and and they're trained kind of in the, the, to to look a lot like a, a military force, although they're not. Um, and then the migration officer's primary role is just to register migrants, so to understand who it is that's entering, and then to ensure that those individuals have not only left the camps, but that they've continued on their journey uh, to Costa Rica or on to the next destination, that they don't stay in Panama, which is a, a big part of Panama's policy around um, migrants moving in and through and out of Darien.
1: Yeah, and when you talk about the Border Patrol, this is the Panamanian Border Patrol. Is is there a
0: U.S. presence as
1: well? Are U.S. Border Patrol there training the Panamanians, or do they have a, a presence there also?
0: So the United States government has a close relationship with Panama's Border border Service. That's what they're called, Cinefront. Um, what this looks like in practice is two things. Um, regularly. Uh, you, DHS officials from the U.S. Embassy travel to Darien, um, basically to monitor the activities that are happening, to observe what it is that's going on, how many people are arriving, what those dynamics look like, how they've changed. Um, but in addition to that, um, you have the U.S. through or in collaboration with, with Panama's Border Patrol um, operating biometrics review. So what that looks like in practice uh, is that certain nationalities, not all nationalities, that cross through the Darien Gap must undergo a biometric review. This has been happening for several years. Um, And what it looks like for the individuals who are moving through is basically um, their IDs are taken, so passports, driver's license, national IDs, That information is input into a system, and then fingerprints, um, retina scans, and photographs are taken of the individuals. That information is then run um, through international as well as U.S. uh, law enforcement databases to understand whether or not an individual is being flagged uh, for any sort of crime or being wanted for any any reason at all. And it also creates this kind of footprint of who it is that's crossed through Darien and who it is that's on the way to the United States or to Canada. Um what Panamanian Border Patrol Patrol is the agency that is responsible for actually day in and day out taking that information. But that is information that is shared uh, with the U.S. government among uh, and within the Panamanian government as well.
1: And which nationalities do they usually target for these checks?
0: So it's primarily individuals who originate outside of the Western Hemisphere, so those from the African continent as well as the Asian continent, um, and some nationalities within the Americas as well. Um, Most notably as of late, it's been Colombian nationals who are increasingly also traveling through Darien for the first time, uh, but also individuals like Dominicans, or if there was kind of randomly, let's say, a Mexican national that crossed through Darien, which wouldn't make a lot of sense, that person would be screened as well.
1: So I was reading uh, one of your reports from the Darien Gap, and it's very interesting. This term, um, "extracontinental migrants," and and you talk about how Europe is increasingly closing its doors to migrants from Africa and other places, um, and in turn, they're they're coming to uh, Latin America, and they're crossing through the Darien instead. Uh, this also got me thinking, in terms of coverage of this phenomenon, we always focus so much on numbers, you know, um, at the border, like, you know, apprehensions are down in, you know, the RGV sector, but they're up in Tucson sector. And I feel like at this point, we need to really focus a lot less on numbers and more on the system itself, and how it works and how it, it funnels people to places and how it creates harm as well. And so I thought that was a very good point that you make that it's not like, you know, by closing your doors that this problem stops. People find a different route. And so what people are doing now is they're coming through the Darien gap. So I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about um, the plight of African migrants, Haitian migrants and and Asian migrants, which you've you've written about and Also, it sounds like they're the ones that are being targeted for these biometric security checks as well.
0: Yes. Um, So I I think in in that way, talking about this migration from outside of the Western Hemisphere is quite distinct. Um, This kind of double securitization around the movement of people from outside of the Western Hemisphere uh, is is particularly unique, um, at least for those who are crossing through Darien. Yeah, I, I mean, I think... My initial interest in Darien really came from understanding that they you know, in 2017, 2018, when I started studying this migration through uh, along this pathway, they were the primary individuals crossing in those years um, by numbers. And, and of course, now that you have uh, Venezuelans and Haitians arriving in such large numbers, they're kind of being overshadowed. Their journeys are overshadowed by by those numbers exactly uh in Darien but but they've continued to to come and in fact this year is going to be the highest number of migrants um moving through Darien also that are coming from the African and Asian continents there's of course a lot of reasons why I mean in part is that there's really serious and compounding drivers of migration broadly in a number of countries throughout the world um, and that's only seeming to grow in in this year and in, in previous years um But I think we also have to think about some of the particular nationalities who are crossing through. So um, part of it is that, yes, it is increasingly more difficult for individuals to reach the European continent, uh, or they're getting stuck in places like Libya or Tunisia and trying to then make secondary kind of attempts to, to find a way to continue their journey somewhere to a point where they'll be safe. Um, The other side of this is now that it's not such a new phenomenon, right? I mean, at least for the last five, six years, you've had African and Asian migrants crossing pretty consistently um, along this route. And that's important because there's now at least a shame of information for would-be migrants to be able to make the best decision possible for themselves. So for instance, um, kind of consistently in the last five or six years, uh, Anglophone Cameroonian migrants have been fleeing, fleeing the conflict, the ongoing violence that's happening in Cameroon. Um, but there's a such a large stream or community of, of individuals who are either being persecuted currently in Cameroon or who have already made this journey that they're able to share information with each other about the risks, of course, um, but also about the route itself. So I think that's one part of, of why you're continuing to see this, this migration continue. Uh, you have the kind of really serious drivers of migration. You have this stream of information. Um, And then you also have communities of Cameroonians or of Yemenis or of Somalis who are also in the United States. And I think this is perhaps most clear with a very particular nationality that's begun to arrive um, or cross through Darien in the last year, and that's Afghans. Um, So Afghans began to to arrive at least kind of consistently almost every day by the end of last year, by the end of 2022. That's when it was kind of obvious that this wasn't just kind of one-off Afghans arriving. You started to see entire Afghan families arriving. And the very unique part of of their experiences is that the vast majority of those individuals worked in some capacity with U.S. security forces um, while the United States was there. These were either individuals who had attempted to uh, apply for special immigrant visas or who in other ways believed that at some point they were going to to make it to the United States, um, but weren't able to get out before the Taliban took control of Kabul. So I say that because, you know, it doesn't make immediate sense that so many Afghans would be crossing. We're talking about thousands of Afghans just this year alone. Um, but these were individuals who had in their mind from the very beginning that they were going to go to the United States as well. Although the journey that they're ultimately taking is, you know, across 14, 15, 16 countries um, with that intent to to ultimately reach the United States. So so I think there are kind of three things going on then. I think that you have increasing difficulty of reaching other traditional destinations, which would have been Europe in the case of many African as well as South Asian migrants. Um, You have the stream of information that exists to allow people to make the best decisions that they can. And then you have the United States as a draw factor for a number of reasons, including language, uh, but also the communities that the migrant communities are diaspora communities that already exist within the United States. And that combination has created a space where you start to see a growing diversity of individuals moving through the Americas in an attempt to reach the U.S.
1: Yeah. And I mean, when I talk to border patrol officials here in the U.S., they always they always fault the smugglers, saying that the smugglers are you know, going into these communities and lying to them and telling them that that this journey will be easy. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, possibly, is that part of it? But I mean, what are the biggest factors in that the people you spoke with in the the Darien that uh, caused them to to make the journey and to leave their, their home?
0: I don't think, in my experience, anyone was ever under the impression that this was going to be an easy journey. I mean, just looking at the map, you you realize, you recognize just how far you have to go. Let alone thinking about all of the challenges you're going to face. Um, I think that what actually ends up being the biggest source of information for individuals really isn't the smugglers. Although yes, lots of people use guides. It's the other migrants that they know. You either through WhatsApp groups or other social media groups that they're constantly in communication with. So people are are very aware of what they're going to be experiencing or the potential risks that they're facing in crossing the Darien. It's very rare rare to hear someone say, I didn't know what to expect when I crossed Darien. Now, they may say it was worse than I expected or I saw things that I hadn't anticipated. But knowing that you're going to be making a hike without enough supplies and that you're risking your life is something that everyone, for the most part, was, was relatively aware of. I think, um, you know, where it starts to become... A surprise for people is the level of corruption that migrants in particular have to face, and, in, and even more in particular, more specifically, black migrants. Um, these are individuals who are going to be very obvious as people who are not originally from countries like Panama or countries like Mexico as they're making their way through, um, and increasingly find themselves at risk of being bribed, robbed, um, kidnapped, or being detained repeatedly uh in a way that other migrants perhaps weren't facing to the same degree um and if you compound that with individuals who don't speak spanish the the experiences become really really challenging so i i'm I'm always hesitant to to blame smugglers for for either giving false information or lack of information although it does happen of course in some cases um i think that individuals themselves have a lot of agency in, in finding ways to get information prior to having to to Uh, solicit the smuggling services from individuals and they're not solely ever relying on just one source of information to make the decisions that they're making Um, and in fact in many cases, in almost all cases, the individuals that that I have interviewed and whose lives that I've followed through the Americas would say that they really credit having hired facilitators' guides to actually making their journeys safer um, as they navigated crossing borders or trying to get uh, through countries with as little kind of chance of being robbed or having to pay bribes as possible so I, I always try to push back on this narrative of, of smugglers as evil actors of course there are but uh, it, it, collectively people are relying on people that you know Ethiopians rely on on smugglers that other Ethiopians had recommended and the same goes for for most nationalities or for most language speakers there's a lot of information being shared so um yeah to, to think that that people aren't able to make the best decisions for themselves as possible, I think, is really selling short the amount of information that's being shared on a daily basis between migrants themselves.
1: Yeah, and how much do people typically pay to be guided through the Darien? How much so, does it cost?
0: Yeah, so relatively speaking, the Darien is one of the cheaper parts of the journey, which maybe doesn't make a lot of sense, um, at least initially. It kind of struck me as odd as well. Um, but there's a couple of things going on. So, first, as I mentioned, most individuals are only paying for smuggling services up to the Panamanian border. At that point, the guides, for the most part, don't continue onward. Um, and that's because Panama has really cracked down really hard on smuggling, saying that smuggling isn't necessary because all transit migration, migrants are able to enter the country and continue onward, and therefore they're going to to crack down hard on smugglers. Um, so for one, it's not that, this, that individuals are, are being facilitated or guided all the way through the jungle. Um, but in general, people are paying a couple of hundred dollars max uh, for those services to be able to basically leave the Colombian side of the border. And sometimes that also includes um, having to informally pay for the right of passage uh, for the criminal group that operates there. What people in Mexico call piso, it does, that term doesn't really exist in Colombia. Um and then to, to be guided up to a certain point, basically up to the border, or what uh, migrants would refer to as la bandera, where there's the, the flags of um, Colombia and Panama. There are, of course, more expensive routes, especially for migrants who have a lot of resources. Uh, those are primarily maritime routes, though. So rather than trekking all the way through the jungle, um, migrants that have quite a bit of money will pay to basically travel in a go-fast boat into Panamanian waters and then only have to to travel a very short amount of time actually hiking through a jungle to reach the camps. In those cases, people are paying usually anywhere between $1,000 and $2,000 per person, Um, and it is a slightly more organized kind of operation than this this almost makeshift guide service that's existing uh, for the majority of people making the trek.
1: Yeah. And have you followed people all the way up to the U.S.-Mexico border? And how many uh, folks uh, apply for asylum and are actually allowed to enter the United States? Uh, I mean, just anecdotally from people that you've spoken with in the Darien.
0: Yeah. So I'm still probably in touch with about 100 individuals or 100 families. Um a- Almost all of them have entered the United States, uh, in some capacity. Almost all of them have begun their asylum processes. Um, for those who crossed or entered before Title Forty Two ended, um, things were a little bit different. There was no, not, they weren't all necessarily waiting for CBP one appointments. But now that that there are, I guess more consequences for crossing between ports, the majority of the individuals who I'm following right now are are waiting. That's why they're kind of still in Mexico waiting for an appointment to be able to enter into the United States. Um, About two thirds of the individuals that I have been following continue to be in the United States, about one third continued onward into Canada. Um, but at least of the individuals who I'm following, who again, are non-native Spanish speakers, um, none have any intention of staying in Mexico, at least not permanently, although some have temporarily. The next step, of course, is then all of the complications that come with the, the legal side of this. So applying for asylum, waiting for a work authorization, um, and then figuring out, you know, how to enroll children in school, um, what it is exactly that their documents say, uh, and, and all of the kind of struggles that come with having used lots and lots of money frankly to make an 11 or 12 country journey um, to then have to wait many months uh to to get work authorization to kind of start their lives in the united states or canada
1: yeah and and do do these folks have relatives already in the u.s and canada that they've come to join and maybe if you could explain for some of our listeners who may not understand i know i always get Comments like, well, why couldn't they just apply from their own country and for a visa and fly into the United States? Why does it have to be this complicated? I guess if you could explain for those listeners who don't quite understand the process,
0: yeah, absolutely, so I'll start with that part um, the The issue for a lot of these individuals so is that they actually had tried on many occasions to request uh, some sort of visa or status either in. The United States or Canada and in some cases in Europe. Um, I've even interviewed people who had been accepted in US universities who were denied student visas. Um, I've also interviewed many Afghans who tried a number of ways to get status or to be able to fly into the United States or be paroled from either Afghanistan or Pakistan. Um, But those those plans didn't pan out. They were denied um, for a number of reasons, mostly that it's incredibly difficult to get a, a visa from many of the countries that I'm talking about. In some cases, the U.S. doesn't even have a diplomatic presence in these countries uh, or isn't issuing visas in those countries, Afghanistan being one of them. Um, and so that option was taken off of the table. And what it ends up looking like is that you have to find a way to get to the United States other way, through other means. Um, and in some cases, in some African countries, uh, there's visa-free travel to countries in the Caribbean or individuals are able to get um, visas to Brazil because Brazil has a large diplomatic presence on the African continent. Um, Brazil has also historically issued humanitarian visas uh, to countries in, in humanitarian crises, Haiti as well as Afghanistan recently, um, which allowed individuals to travel through. Uh, and Ecuador has historically been a country that had very lax visa uh, regulations. That is increased slightly in the last few years but still Ecuador continues to be one of the countries who requires visas for the fewest nationalities um, and so that's why you end up seeing the starting point for so many of the folks whose journeys that I have followed being in South America or in the Caribbean and then having to make this journey northward um, to to reach the United States uh, and to be in a place that, that they feel safe. Um, the other part of, of the question was whether or not individuals have family members or, or friends in, in the U.S. or Canada? Um, in most cases, the answer was yes. Some Everybody had somebody. Um, in some cases, it was a really close family member, a brother, a mother. Uh, in other cases, it was somebody from the same town as me or someone I went to high school with. Um, but, but the idea was that they were meeting somebody, that, that somebody was ready to receive them. Um, I think this is in part because of particularly the nationalities that I was focusing on. I mean, there are large Cameroonian... Nigerian, Ghanaian, Afghan, uh, Somali, uh, diaspora communities within the United States, and then in the case of, of French-speaking African migrants, and there are at least large pockets of, of French-speaking African migrants that live in Canada, uh, as well as a large kind of Haitian community in both, in both countries. And so in some way, somebody, everybody had somebody, um, whether that was somebody that they ended up staying with permanently is another kind of discussion, I think. Uh, because it's very, again, it's very expensive for people to, to stay in the U.S. and wait for that, for that work authorization for many, many months um, before kind of being able to, to financially support themselves again.
1: Yeah, and you see all this prevention through deterrence that the U.S. government invests in, and we have Texas, of course, now with the buoy barrier, the razor wire, and everything else. I mean, you, you're seeing people walk on foot through the jungle for 10 days and travel through 12 different countries. Is prevention through deterrence, you know, the the border wall, all of that going to prevent people from coming?
0: I, I think there's a lot of irony in thinking that any measure that the United States is going to take at its southern border is going to be worse than what people endured in the Darien Gap. Um, I mean if you're talking about prevention through deterrence, what what stronger deterrence mechanism than one of the most impenetrable jungles in the world? And yet 250,000 people have crossed this year alone. Um, the way that I think about this is basically the Darien Gap is already a pathway of last resort for individuals. People are very much willing to put their lives at risk, and including their families, because they don't see another alternative. So any measure taken at the policy level that attempts to dissuade migrants who have already crossed the Darien Gap really just doesn't really doesn't make sense. It doesn't it doesn't stand. And I mean, I think you can see that as the United States consistently increasing the types of either pr- uh, prevention through deterrence measures or attempting to kind of bypass this through other legal pathways, and yet the numbers of people crossing the Darien Gap continue to rise. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, this this rationale. And I think if you speak to, for those who have spoken to people who've crossed the dairy and you see that, I mean, we have to try is consistently the kind of message that I received. If we don't try, we don't know what's going to happen to us. Um, But it has to be better than what we've been living in South America or in parts of of Africa or Asia. And so I think You know, a lot of these these policies or these measures are kind of missing the point uh, in terms of the rationale and the drive that people have to to continue their journeys northward.
1: Yeah. And the work that you've done, you very helpfully have put recommendations at the ends of your reports. And, And so I kind of wanted to end this interview on a more positive note with maybe a couple of recommendations, your top recommendations as to what our government could do to really actually make a difference and prevent deaths and injuries and people from taking this dangerous journey.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I don't think that there's any policy specifically that the US can engage in that's going to stop all the misery unless it allows individuals not to to have another means of entering the United States beyond having to reach the US on foot. That's that's the unfortunate reality. But I do think that there are measures that can be taken. that create at least a little bit less suffering. Um, You know, I think one thing is consistently the issue was that any given day, about two dozen nationalities would arrive in the camps in Panama. And aside from myself, uh, every authority figure or non-migrants spoke only Spanish. So trying to navigate reporting a missing person or explaining that you need medical care was immensely challenging for hundreds, in some cases, thousands of people every week. Um, Having access to interpreters or interpretation devices or translated documents would have saved people a lot of suffering. Um, The same goes on the Colombian side, though. I mean, as I mentioned, the the vast majority of people who die or go missing in the jungle. It's because of of the rivers that flood. It's because of drowning incidents. Um, Having information in languages that are accessible to all on the Colombian side of the jungle to say things like you need to travel across the rivers in groups, please don't make your camp at night next to the riverbeds, but actually save lots of lives and not be a very costly uh, type of measure to at least allow people who are cross- who are having to cross the Darien to have a little bit better information about those types of strategies. And then, you know, I think the other part of this is and, and something that I haven't fully hit on is just the amount of discrimination and racism that exists um, for for lots of migrants. Of course, there's xenophobia for, for lots of people on the move, but in particular for black migrants or for racialized migrants from other nationalities. Um, and this cons- cons- consistently came up as an issue for individuals being very fearful of either reporting crimes or of going to authorities, including going into shelters um, in Mexico and elsewhere for fear of being discriminated against by other migrants or people who ran shelters. So this idea of kind of individuals not only being in positions of vulnerability as a result of being on the move, but then not feeling that they had equal access to justice or healthcare or housing as a result of of discrimination that they had faced or that they felt that they would face. you know, having more access to training, having more access to uh, anti-racism, and anti-discrimination training within the government and elsewhere, doesn't solve all of the problems. It definitely doesn't, but it's a starting place. Um, and I think that that's kind of worth noting as Haitian migrants, as well as uh, migrants from outside of the Western hemisphere continue to, to travel through the Americas. Yeah, yeah, so it sounds like
1: we need a multilingual communications team
0: down uh, there. I, I think that has to be a starting point, because it, the amount of problems that could be solved just by individuals being able to communicate with others uh, is almost immeasurable. Um, but it was a daily challenge for everyone in the camps.
1: Yeah, and I, I just wanted to circle back to the number of people who are missing, who have disappeared in the Darien, so there's really no idea of how many people have gone missing. Is Is there any kind of estimate or... Or is it not even possible to determine the number?
0: Yeah, so so as it stands now, it's incredibly difficult to have any sort of real number. I mean any number that, that you read is, is going to be such an undercount that that it it's not fully worthy of saying, you know, X number of people died. Um the only two ways to really measure this, because there aren't consistent searches happening uh within the Darien Gap are twofold. One is the number of bodies recovered, which is such a small fraction of the individuals who even report missing persons. So basically it, it indicates not only was somebody, did a family member or a loved one report that the person was missing, but then they convinced officials to go and conduct a search and the officials were successful in their search of actually identifying and recovering the body. So that doesn't happen very often Um, or the other way that I've been trying to track missing persons and also that the Missing Migrants Project of the IOM tries to track missing persons in the Darien uh, is through media reports. Again, that's a significant undercount because it's only going to be either large incidents or it's going to be where family members were able to communicate with um, media publications. Um, but it's another way to at least get at some of the individual cases of missing persons or deceased persons who weren't captured by rec- this kind of recovered bodies metric. But beyond that, the vast majority of, of individuals who go missing either won't be reported because people want to continue their journeys um, and see it as kind of a futile effort in many cases, or in the case of somebody kind of reporting that missing uh, that missing individual. Um, only the recovered bodies are going to be reported by Panamanian officials, and so you still don't have a good sense of even how many people have been reported as missing.
1: And uh, so do you plan on going back there again to do more research?
0: Yes, at some point I do. Um, I'm going to take a long break, though, from, from going there after I think I left Especially kind of on a, on a low note, the day that I left, there was a, a major accident in, in Panama where a bus crashed and, and 40 migrants died in that bus crash, um, which certainly impacted me uh, and frustrated me and, and uh, made it a little bit difficult for me to think about going back. But at some point, I would like to go back. In fact, the project that I would like to conduct is uh, with a specialized unit who conducts um, body or attempts to conduct body. Uh, search and rescue and and body recovery missions within the Border Patrol to understand their work better and to understand the kind of limited resources that they have and how they could see things going better for for that unit. Um, But I think that that's going to be much farther in the future, uh, given how difficult that topic is for for me and and also for them that are working on it.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin, for spending... uh some time today with us and talking about your research and I look forward to following uh, what you work on next and I will definitely link to Caitlin's work in the show notes and to her bio as well so you can learn more about her and, and what she does. Thank you so much, Caitlin.
0: Thank you so much, Melissa. It's great to be here.
1: All right. Take care. You've been listening to the Border Chronicle podcast. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This episode was edited by me, Steve Heiss. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It will help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com.